era of independent music celebration. Indecent exposure. You were convicted of indecent exposure for the third time. That's exactly what it is there, Poindexter. It is four counts of indecent exposure. Oh, no, no, it can't be four counts. It can't be more than two. Hey, this is your host, Jason Velasquez, known in an alternate universe as The Mongrel. It's good to have you here with me for this inaugural episode of Indecent Exposure. When last we left our hero, yours truly, I was spinning new tracks from local indie artists such as Wishbone Zoe and The Kids, uh, The Sun Parade, Winter Pills, Molly Pinto Madigan, and many others. And that's not going to change. The only difference is that before, these songs were played on the podcasts Will Call and the top left corner at com, And this podcast, Indecent Exposure, and that's I-N-D-I-E, Scent Exposure, will also live at the Greylock Glass. However, it'll be its own thing. Uh, You asked for it. You got it. Uh, Many suggestions came in saying, you know, you really ought to move all this stuff over into, you know, all this this music into its own little home. Its own little home where it wouldn't hurt anybody else. It wouldn't wouldn't threaten uh, the nice things that you have on other shows. And and after a while, I decided that was probably kind of true because sometimes we want to get a little... A little raw. We want to get a little edgy, and we don't want to. We don't want to scare anybody who might be coming to find out about what's going on in the arts and culture world of the Berkshires uh, on on Will Call, or who might want to be finding out just what's going on newswise uh, in Northern Berkshire County on the top left corner. So, if you want those things, you can still get them uninterrupted, unimpeded by independent music and the sensibilities thereof. What What's the history here? What is the history? You know, once upon a time, I may have mentioned this before, I had a show, this was back in 2005 and 2006, called The Mongrel's Howl. And that was my first foray into podcasting and uh, when I really, really fell in love with indie music. It felt like so many things were coming together at the same time. Uh, number The first thing that was coming uh, together was that it was becoming increasingly difficult for independent musicians to get any recognition. Now, that was a bad thing, you know, when it comes to what could they expect from labels. Uh, It was a good thing in what happened once the MP3 was widely adopted as a file format that was so darn easy to transport over the internet. Once people had faster internet speeds, when we had dial-up, in the 90s and even the early 2000s, shipping a, you know, several megabyte file, megabit file over the internet was not feasible. I mean, you really couldn't download an entire CD's worth of music on dial-up. I mean, I suppose you could if you, and I probably did this, uh, you know, you'd, you'd hit download uh, while you went, as you went to bed, and then in the morning, it would be there for you. But... You know, that just wasn't really practical. And then as speeds, as internet speeds got better, people started saying, okay, well, what would happen if I set up a system by which people could share music? Some things were kind of good and easy and and above board. iTunes, for example. Some things less so. Some things were kind of 
definitely sort of parody in nature. But whatever the case, evolution happened. And distribution channels and ambitious tech-loving nerds like myself and artistic independent musicians who were willing to embrace a new way all sort of came together in this, the word will come to me. Well, maybe it won't come to me. Come together in this mashup of technology, industry, art, uh, into this wonderful, yeah, the word's still not going to come to me. Um, Vortex? Mm, Close, but not quite. Anybody who can think of the word that I'm trying to think of, uh, just email that to me because it's going to drive me crazy. Uh, and people started being getting exposed to all kinds of music that they had never heard before. Uh, artists were able to get their stuff out there to the people who really mattered to them. The people who wanted to listen to not just kind of like the music, exactly the music. So segmentation happened And people were able to hear exactly the music that they wanted to hear. And musicians were able to get their music to exactly who wanted to hear it. And in many cases, this happened directly. And as is still happening, many people charge what you can afford to pay. Uh, That happens pretty frequently on places like, I think it's Bandcamp, uh, where you get some some artists say, you know, above three bucks, pay what you want um, for for this, this album. And I think... That sort of liberalization, democratization of artistic distribution is perhaps saving the world a little bit at a time. So that's my that's my raison d'être uh, for indecent exposure. We are still exposing new audiences to new music all over the place. My focus is on the Northeast specifically Western Massachusetts, more broadly, the Northeast. But I'm getting queries from artists all over the world who wonder if I want to feature their music. So I will probably play at least one tune per show that comes from far-flung places. And I can't even tell you where right now because there's quite a list of neat music that I'd like to play. Will there be any uh, genres that get favored more than others? I don't know. Probably not. What I can tell you is that we have, in this first episode, this first maiden voyage of indecent exposure here at the Greylock Glass, we have, I don't even know exactly what to call him. I'm tempted to say the godfather of podcast musicians. Um, He's not the godfather of podcasting, because that would be Adam Curry, probably. But certainly, uh, maybe the the general, the admiral, I don't know, the vanguard leader of podcast musicians, Monk Duane. Now, we've talked about Monk Duane, and we've played music from his most recent release, Argue With Gravity, on both Will Call and The Top Left Corner. And I am extremely excited to play uh, to play some more Monk Duane for you from that CD. But I'm excited to do something else. I'm excited because tonight, or this morning, or this afternoon, or you know, whenever you happen to be listening to this, we have Monk Duane on the line to talk to us about all things indie music, all things musical career, all things Monk Duane. 
and we're going to ask him some questions, and he'll give us as much time as he can. And this is going to be one of my favorite parts of Indecent Exposure, is that you're going to get to hear from these these artists uh, straight from the horse's mouth. And I'm not talking 30-second sound bites. I'm talking like old-school 70s radio, early 80s radio, where you actually felt like you took something away, a meal, you know? And he'll talk about what he's got going on. He will talk about some of the great work that he's been doing, not just, you know, in in, in releasing his own music, but uh, to, to you, but also scoring movies and television and video games and you name it, he's been doing it. You know, before we listen, before we go to that Monk Duane interview, let's play my f- very first introduction to Monk Duane when I think he was pretty much only went by Monk and he wrote a song for, I want to say it was Accident Hash. It was a podcast that he wrote sort of a theme song for. It became the anthem of podcasters just about everywhere because it captured the spirit of the times when podcasting is new, was new. Everybody around these days says, well, you know, I've been in podcasting a long time. I've been it for, you know, a year and a half. Uh, you know, here in 2015, and I think that's that's funny. But you know, whenever you get into it, or you know, get back into it, as as is my case, is a good thing. Um, I think that podcasting answers a real need and a real hole in the media landscape, the mediascape. And I think that when we get a chance to express ourselves with no middleman. Uh, just me to you, I think that life is made richer. Uh, so let us hear that very first song that I heard from Monk that captured the spirit of the times and still does, I think. It's Pod People by Monk Dwayne.
That was Pod People by Monk Duane, circa 2005. Monk's come a long way, both personally and musically, since that time, and he was kind enough to speak with Indecent Exposure here at the Greylock Glass and share some of his insights about music, about the arts, about life, and about why we shouldn't be bystanders. Um, I would say that of special note to aspiring musicians who are wondering what kind of a future is there in the music business, he shares for free some tidbits and some tips about what being a musician today means in practical terms, what you can expect, and some of the ways that you can plan to find a way to make your music last and create a legacy. So let's go to that interview with Monk Dwayne here at Indecent Exposure. Monk, it is so great to have you on Indecent Exposure here on the Greylock Glass. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's such a pleasure to have you on. I can tell you that once upon a time I had this show uh, called The Mongrel's Howl. It was a, lasted about maybe a year. And it was indie music, and you were one of the very first acts that I came across back in those days. It was the, the song was Pod People. That <laughs> that I yeah it was an anthem uh, to I know to me and to millions of other uh, indie music fans and thousands of other podcasters. What was the scene like back in those days? Um, it was it was it was an interesting time, right? It was a, it was a, to be on the cusp of emerging technology as it was happening. Um, is, is a special place, and it's not something you get to do very often. And to and and that there was an actual group of people that recognized that and seized upon it, um, it was it was really interesting. It had a lot of energy, and there's a lot of enthusiasm, and there's a lot of uh, optimism about uh, sort of taking control back and, and having this free voice that wasn't governed by uh, FCC rules or um, or any rules, for that matter. It was a complete frontier, and uh, it, was a, it was a great time to be involved in it. It seemed that the industry had sort of, you know, for up and coming artists had sort of sort of bottomed out in the early 90s. I mean, there was there were so little chances for a lot of people to get noticed if they were doing anything, you know, groundbreaking or, or on the cutting edge. And it almost seemed like serendipity for the technology to catch up with the the, the burgeoning artistic side of music. Um, there was that, but there was also, it was, the timing of it was kind of perfect, right? So not too many years before that whole revolution started was the beginning of, um, of, of massive piracy. Um, and the, you know, now, you know, history, uh, you know, looking back with, with, um, with the 2020 vision, as we look backwards, that's what kind of destroyed the record industry as we knew it. Um, and the, the labels cannibalized themselves, and it just completely imploded. So it was a period between, I'd say, maybe 1999, 2000, and around 2005, 2006, where it was just kind of a wasteland. A lot of us didn't know what the hell to do. Um, so that's when we started kind of taking matters into our own hands. The labels couldn't do for us anymore what we needed them to do, uh, nor did we really want them to. Um, I know at that point in 2000, I actually turned down a record, a record deal with uh, with a label, um, and we all started kind of striking out on our own and seeing if we could actually apply the same strategy uh, in a sort of a smaller sphere and uh, and have any modicum of the same success. And and for and for some of us, it actually worked out really really well. And then along came podcasting, and all of a sudden, 
we went from having uh, fairly reasonable regional success to global success in a way none of us saw coming. I mean, I was on about a thousand different podcasts at that time, um, and it was showing in my iTunes sales from iTunes Europe, uh, uh, Japan, America, Canada, everywhere, which, I mean, it surprised the hell out of me. I ended up getting a, uh, a Billboard magazine feature on the number of downloads I was able to sell from iTunes all over the world without a record label, and that was all because of podcasting. Yeah, you're quoted in a couple of places as crediting podcasting with a great deal of, of exposure that you got. And and I'm wondering, was what was out there that you, in podcasting that you saw that gave you hope? I mean, what was what was the scene like there that you, you thought this is something that I can I can latch on to? Um what did I see? I mean I just saw people who were it, it was like the early days of radio. Um uh, I should say the early days of FM radio, where um, it was yeah, it was no man's land, and it was it was at the same time it was um, you didn't know who was listening, uh, you had some feedback, you weren't really aware that there were a lot of people listening, and it was a snowball effect. So listening, you know, the people that were listening to uh, Mark Yoshimoto Nemkov's show, and the people that listened to Adam Curry and CC Chapman, and all these guys who were um, who were kind of the cornerstones in the day of this, of this whole movement. Um, until, like I said, until you start seeing those numbers come in, you're like, wow, there's thousands of people listening to this thing. Um, and you know, along with those numbers came, um, came this notability or notoriety that, uh, that none of us saw coming. Now, fast forward to today, there are geometrically more podcasts today than there, than there were, um, oh, God, yeah. everybody from, you know, uh, the big box stores to, you know, the mainstream media to, and people you know like me, um, they're still out there. Do you find that it is still a, a channel podcasting for, for your music? It is still a channel, but I'm finding it's also, so we were, we were kind of in the same boat. We we're leading, leading parallel lives back then. Right. So the indie movement, as we know it today, was sort of in its infancy back then, as was podcasting. So there were fewer artists like me trying to make their way through that method, and there were fewer podcasts making their way through that same that same methodology. Um, so we found each other, and we were able to find success together. Today, everyone and their mother with you know GarageBand can release something that sounds fairly reasonable if they if they work at it and and have the chops for it. So the the market, as far as indie goes, is just more saturated than it's ever been in history. Um, I'm finding the same thing has happened in terms of podcasting, where once big brands got their hands on the concept and started to really, because that's a big wheel, right? So it turns really slowly. Once they started to understand the power of, hey, people are listening to this stuff, they all latched onto it, uh, and now there's there's millions of podcasts. So it's hard to take that sort of targeted core audience and then dilute them to the point of being able to mobilize them the same way we did back then. Um, so yeah, it, it's, I haven't seen as big an impact as back in the day, uh, which is funny because it wasn't that long ago to say back in the day, but, um, yeah, people are still, I mean, they're still listening they're still out there and they're still the loyalists, but there's so it's almost like the uh, like the cheesecake factory menu. 
right? You sit down at the Cheesecake Factory, you open that menu, it's like a novel. And there's so many choices that people get paralyzed by choice. There's almost too much choice. It's the, the, um, Yeah, yeah. And now I think we have the same thing in both indie music and the same thing in podcasting. No, so it, much choice, people are paralyzed. No, it's a funny thing. I can't remember where I saw the definition, but I saw a definition in the last couple of weeks of indie music that suggested that it is a sound now more than it is a an artistic uh, model and an, a distribution model, that it's really more about how things sound. I wonder, what, what, what do you think indie music, you, know, you say it's saturated, has it changed in nature? I don't think that, see, I, I kind of categorically disagree with that. I don't think indie music is a sound at all. I think indie, indie music is a strategy. I think indie music is a methodology. I think it's a way for artists who want nothing to do with, uh, with a record label to have their own business. It, it, is, it is sort of musical definition of the mom and pop store. Um, and, you know, your mom and pop store can sell clothes. They could, it could be a restaurant. It could be, it could be anything. I think indie, quote unquote, is the same thing. It just describes the methodology. I don't think it describes the sound at all. I'm so glad to hear you say that because I read that and my blood pressure shot up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so you've you've come out with a few albums uh, over the years since then. I guess your first album was what, Anime Sweetheart? Uh, yes. Followed by Severed, which is where Pod People was, was on, I guess. Um, uh, Pod People was never on an album. I actually was asked by uh, Mark Yoshim, Yoshimoto Nemkov back in the day to, uh, he, he, he and I went to Berkeley together, so we, we've known each other for a long, long time. And he, he said, listen, this is, he was trying to sell me on the concept of podcasting, and I hadn't even heard of it. Um, he's like, it's this movement, and it's this thing, take a listen to this, take a listen to that. You know, what if you wrote a theme for it? And I'm like, I was laughing at him. I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll write a theme for it. And I did it as kind of a goof, but as I started to listen to it and started to really understand what the what the character and nature was, especially at that time, it was just this awesome, um, uh, free-spirited, um, and sort of the sort of almost re- rebelling against the status quo. Uh, I was like, oh, this is this this totally speaks to me. So I actually wrote podcasting from that perspective, uh, people from that perspective, and at that point, Adam Curry had picked up on it as well, and he started playing it constantly. And because Adam was the pod father, <laughs> everyone was playing whatever he played, um, which is why so many podcasts back then picked it up. But I had, I had written it specifically just for uh, just for the people I knew in podcasting. It never appeared on an album. No, well, thanks for setting me straight on that. Uh, I oh, went, no problem. I went back to my notes from 2005, and I see that they were wrong back then. Um, so <laughs> so uh, then you had Modest Among the Living... Uh, everywhere is south of somewhere, and most yes. recently, just this year, argue with gravity. Just um, last month, yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, I am, I have my own thoughts on your sort of evolution and transformation as an artist and a storyteller. But I wonder if you could tell me what you see when you look uh, back through the mirror of time. Um. <laughs> It's interesting. So when I got started with Anime Sweetheart, that was just as my band Super G had turned down our record label deal. 
Uh, we spent six months of negotiating uh, that contract, and it was one of the reasons I went to Berkeley College of Music in the first place was to learn how to read a record contract. Um, the contract was horrible. It was it was just your boilerplate deal. It didn't offer any tour support. There was no PR. Um, it was terrible, and we spent so long negotiating it, and then so long trying to get it in the first place because that's you know back in the day that was the model that was every band's dream, and we finally kind of saw the reality of the situation and said no. Uh, their jaws dropped, and so did ours, frankly. <laughs> and uh, we walked away, broke up the band, and at the time I took a lot of the music that was going to be on the Super G's label debut and turned it into Anime Sweetheart. Um, so at that point, I was super in... I mean, this is still you know, mid to late 90s, so I was still super influenced at the time by Soul Coughing and Beck and... Uh, and take and a lot of those types of more quirky '90s bands. Sure. Um, so I wasn't coming so much from the songwriting perspective back then, as much as the uh, just really create a really interesting vibe using technology uh, and great beats and just rhymes and all that kind of stuff. And I love that stuff. And I still do to this day. You know, I came up on like James Brown. But over the years, um, I started to get more into a songwriting head. Um, Severed started that. The sound of that was completely different than Enemy Sweetheart. I was going through a divorce. I had just been through a horrible, you know, head-on car collision. I had to learn how to walk again, the whole shooting match. And uh, so Severed is a very, very angry album. But it also started the the sort of concentrating more on the song and communicating my thoughts rather than just the vibe. Uh, Modest Among the Living, uh, again, is more of that evolution where it's not the song, but there's still some fun. Uh, sort of technology on there. And after that, I think my uh, right around when my second kid was born, the concept of, uh, of legacy started to creep into my brain, uh, where it was about what, what makes music last forever? What is the factor of timelessness that makes the Beatles still relevant, the Stones still relevant, uh, Marvin Gaye still relevant, and people who might have been really, you know, riding the charts high two years ago, today, completely irrelevant. What, mm. what is that intangible factor? So I spent a lot of time at that point, uh, after Miles Among the Living, I stopped, uh, stopped recording, stopped writing, and sort of went back to school as a student of music history. And I started to visit places like Nashville, uh, where, you know, it's it just the core of songwriting and, and trying to understand for the first time, even after having released four albums at that point, um, what is songwriting? How do I communicate my thoughts to the point that um, they become sort of universally interpretable? Uh, and what is that? What is the? How do I strip away all the technology um, and get just get down to the to the song? Um, and I stopped writing and recording for a long time to get to that. Um, I came back with Everywhere South of Somewhere, which actually has a lot of country influence on it, naturally because I spent that time in Nashville. Um, but I think I just started to understand it at that point. And when I finally got to the root of it, I realized for me, it was just about being who I wanted to be when I first started doing this uh, as a kid, which was I listened to a lot of, you know, old school R&B and soul and, you know, uh, late 60s, early 70s, Rolling Stones, and Bill Withers, and Marvin Gaye, and that's where I come from as, an, as, a, as a writer, as an artist, as a musician. 
and that even if it's the most uncool album in the world, <laughs> that's the one I need to make. And so Argue With Gravity literally is that concept. It's I fought for years with what I knew I could sell on TV and film, what I knew uh, made me money, what I knew sold, versus um, who I am. And, uh, and I think I came pretty close to reconciling that on this new album. Well, you're not going to get any arguments from me. Um, <laughs> I, I, think, uh, I think, well, I'll tell you, when I listen in, in order as I kind of have getting you know, ready for this, uh, this conversation, it reminds me of something that an advisor told me back in college. She was uh, originally from Africa, and I wish I could duplicate the, the beautiful lilt of her voice uh, from, from East Africa. But she said that every man, usually around the time they're 30, sometimes you know, later, they go to the mountain, and you have to go to the mountain. And sometimes men have to go twice. Some men, if they're not lucky, they have to go three times. But you have to go <laughs> to the mountain and stay there until you come down with that truth that is only yours, yours and yours alone. And um, That's and a I've, great analogy. I love that. Well, I mean, I think that when you, when you say the things that you say with the, the authenticity that you do, increasingly... Uh, with the authenticity that you do, um, it seems that you have gone musically to the mountain and maybe personally as well, if that's not too bold a statement. No, no, that's, that's absolutely true. I mean, a funny thing happens when you, when you uh, survive something tragic that you're not supposed to. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no way I really should have walked away from that accident. I didn't technically walk away, but I'm, I'm here to tell the tale. And it takes a long time afterwards to kind of reconcile who you were versus the things you took for granted all that time till that point hmm. versus the fact that you have uh, you have another opportunity. And, and I'm not even speaking spiritually as much as just taking stock and recognizing things around you that you just, for whatever reason, you should have paid attention to it before, but you just didn't. Um, and the fact that I have learned that music is a gift. And you can say that till you're blue in the face, and it's become a cliche, but there's a reason that it's a gift. And it's something that when, when, you, when I'm writing, um, and I have those moments of clarity where I'm able to kind of write a song in five or ten minutes, and I feel like I'm more of a conduit. Like some, it's coming to me from somewhere. I don't know where, but it's coming through me, and I can get it out. That's why it's called a gift. Someone is something, whatever, is giving that to me to communicate for, with. Um, and... I did not recognize that for most of my career. Um, and then I recognized that not only am I able to be this conduit, but I'm able to articulate much better than what I'm speaking <laughs> through music um, uh, more, more kind of global thoughts on things. I found out once I started to take that stock and went to the mountain <laughs> that um, I am... I am better as an observer and commentator once I've been involved in something and can speak about that from experience as opposed to writing the I Love You kind of songs. Mm -hmm. um, and they have their place, and there are people that are absolutely great at that. But I, I, I'm better at the... So, so Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, right? That was a big catalyst for me in writing this album. Right. In that you've got this great 
feel where it's almost kind of fun and this music makes you feel good and you want to dance to it, but he's writing about the Vietnam War. And he was, it's so poignant and, and it hits so hard once you get it on that second level. And that's kind of the power of music for me. So I think we live in times that are as tumultuous as those. And I think that uh, maybe even more so, and I don't think history is going to look favorably on where we are right now. Um, and no one's talking about it. The, the popular trend in music right now is to talk about yourself. And that's, uh, that, that's just a level of narcissism I really have a hard time relating to. Um, there's too much going on in the world that needs to be discussed. Um, and it needs to be discussed from an experiential standpoint. you got to get off your ass, get away from Wikipedia, get away from the computer and Facebook, and go out and actually experience these things. Um, one of the things I've been doing as a day job these days is I actually work as a contractor for the Department of Defense. Um, so I have been getting to go to places in the world and places in the United States alone that are not places you want to go where bad things are happening and seeing these things firsthand, um, which has been uh, almost renewing in a way as a songwriter. Um, I'm seeing things from a perspective I never saw before because I'm living through it. It makes, you hard, makes it hard to be a bystander. It's impossible to be a bystander at that point. Which is um, one of the songs. And you know, a bystander one mentality after that. Now, well, you wrote, uh, you wrote uh, Bystander for, uh, on this album, Argue With Gravity. Is, that, is this yeah. where some of that comes from? So Bystander was written, uh, one of the things I got to do was I got to go down to the, uh, the Mexican border uh, in Texas, South Texas. Uh, and I was uh, on exercises with Border Patrol to help with the immigration problem. Um, and, you know, everyone and their mother has, has an opinion on immigration. It's mostly derived from sound bites, maybe some, a little, some more from a little more informed opinion, but secondhand opinion. Um, and when you take the politics out of that issue and you go see a nine-year-old who's been traveling hundreds of miles because where they came from is so horrible, it's a, family was willing to risk them dying to get here. Uh, and by the time they find you, they haven't had water in two days. They haven't eaten in, in a week. And they're virtually uh, on the verge of death. It gives you a whole different perspective on the issue. And you know what? I don't have the political answers. I don't even know if they don't want the political answers. I know that from my involvement, it was purely humanitarian and it, it just gives, when you can put a face on it and that face is that young and that innocent, um, you, you just, you're coming at it from a completely different perspective. Um, and then to see the things I saw in the news and see the uh, protests of the buses and, uh, I mean, opinions from people in my own, you know, in my own sphere of influence who, they, they have such strong opinions, but they're not actually based in firsthand experience. Um that was just impossible for me to wrap my head around. And I never, I never really talk about this job in social media. I don't talk about it much uh, in general because I find that the, the, the armchair experts that, on social media, the, it's just really hard to talk to them. They just think they know, but they haven't lived through it, so they don't. Yeah, I, I, I am there with you. I, I've experienced a number of things that have left indelible marks and sometimes they're so powerful that they're not even worth talking to uh, to people about because they're not going to get it. And it's not always their fault, you know? No, it's not, it's not their fault at all. I, th I think that 
one of the interesting things about social media is as much as it's been a great conduit for communication, unfortunately, I think it's been a great con- uh, a conduit also for people to start digging in harder. Um, the, where there's, there's an opportunity for conversation, there seems to be more of a um, lack of it. It's just people standing on a soapbox yelling at each other what their opinions are, not necessarily listening to different perspectives and actually uh, opening their mind to other possible uh, explanations for things. Um, and it's, just, it's a really scary time in terms of that. I think as much as it's brought us together, it's in a way it's isolating the hell out of us. Well, yeah, I mean, I can, I can, um, I can set up Google alerts so that I receive just the news that I want. I can subscribe to just the media sources that tell me, give me the, the, the reflection of my own opinion. And I can join various groups in the social media that are full of people who agree with me. I almost, I never have to, I never have to confront an opposing opinion if I don't want. You can filter out the contrarians so simply. And the problem is, we need the contrarians. <laughs> we need we need the we need the people who challenge what we think of things. That's how we grow. I mean, think about it. If you still thought what you thought at 17 years old as an adult, you know what kind of uh, what kind of depth to your life would there have been between then and now? You, you wouldn't have grown. You wouldn't have learned. You wouldn't have seen. You know, you wouldn't have had these great experiences where it's you you have those moments of realization like, whoa, that's what that's about, or that's what that means. You know, and there are as much information is available to us now. We are choosing to ignore certain things. We're, we're, we're you know, not to not to get all, you know, hey, I walked ten miles of school uphill both ways in the snow. But <laughs> back in the day, you had a smaller conduit of information. Uh, it took more um, that 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 information before it got to you was more scrutinized because those were the only avenues for that information. Um, and now there are so many amateur, you know, Cronkites out there. And people see things in writing and they think it's true and they form opinions based on that. People form strong opinions and fight over memes. Mm. I mean, it, it's, it's just unbelievable that this is the, what we've become. We've, we've come to the point where we, we, we we're almost belittling intelligence. Um, and we're not, we're not being proactive. And, uh, and, and actually getting that information in ourselves. And, and I don't want to get on the soapbox about that. I mean, it's, that, that's just kind of uh, my perspective and my experience. I am fortunate that I've had the opportunity to uh, to communicate that through music and through lyrics, which is a little more of a, a, a passive delivery device than <laughs> just saying what my opinion is in, in, in a conversation. Well, given that, and I think you're right, you said a, a while ago that we're living in in extremely turbulent times and some of the issues that we're going to be facing over the next 5, 10, 20 years are issues that will make our heads spin and I think that we need as much objective consideration as we can get and I think that's one of the reasons why uh, despite the fact that there's a content explosion, maybe an an overload, uh, the fact that there are so many independent artists um, expressing themselves and their take on on the, the present. I think that that may be a golden age of political speech through art that we haven't seen maybe in, in ever, maybe ever. 
Yeah, and, and that used to be, I mean, it used to be one of the functions of art. And I think that the the way that we've, the opportunity for art now is, is greater than it's ever been. Anyone can express themselves um, with simple tools that are available to everybody right now, from apps to whatever. That's really, really cool. But the problem is, is that there's no filtration system. And as much as I get down on the labels uh, for what they ultimately brought the music industry to, um, at one, once upon a time, they served that purpose of being that filtration system, mm. where um, there, there had to be a level of quality control and a level of development and a commitment to development um, that by the time that art got to the consumer, um, in, in some cases they were actually saying something really important and it was worth listening to. But you didn't, you weren't bombarded with literally millions of options. Like I couldn't go on Spotify and get, you know, two dozen options of things I wanted to listen to. Now I can listen to millions of things. That's great. How do I find the stuff that's really that really speaks to me? And then how do I find the stuff that is actually trying to say something? You know, the, the, that that filtration system is gone. I mean, you could you can try and do a, like a keyword search, but I don't think that um, uh, user experience is really accounting for uh, that type of filtration. Well, let's and, ho- um, let's hope that your friendly neighborhood podcaster uh, will be able to. <laughs> Fill that fill that role a little bit, um, right? I mean, and and I'm I'm joking, but I think that in a lot of ways, you know, one of the things that you've got going for you is time. You can look at your history, you can see the track record, you can read the press, you can. It's clear that one of the things that you've got going for you is is uh, consistency over time, and. <laughs> That well, there have been some yeah, there have been some calendar some schedule you know, uh, calendar lapses, but you know you've been doing this, you've been at it for a while, and you've been performing for a long time, and I wanted to, I wanted to ask about that as well because sure. we've been talking about the 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 Ethernet, you know, the ether, the digital world, but yeah. you're out there in the real world as well. Yeah. How, what kind of um, what kind of evolution, if any, has occurred in the live experience of, of your performance. So I, I just want to address that consistency thing and why I'm laughing at it. Be only in that, not necessarily in, in the, in the creation of product, but in the product itself, once it was created, the last thing in the world I've ever been is consistent. And that it's not by design. It's by, um, I, I just, it's almost like I have a short attention span. I actually don't, but every album sounds so different from one another that it was actually very hard for me for a long time to to gain an audience. I, I went from Anime Sweetheart, which was an early EDM record, to uh, to Severed, which was a very heavy '90s you know '90s rock influenced record. Um, I mean, geez, to a country record to today, which is you know a, a soul you know R and B record, and, and that's <laughs> it's just funny because I, I I will generally get called out as being. Uh, Almost like any one of my albums is a compilation record, so <laughs> I was I was happy to hear the word consistent because I, I feel like I never am. Um, as far as the me uh, as as the live scene is gone, um, that's a tough one to, to to tackle too. I don't tour as much as I would absolutely love to. I play a lot regionally. Uh, I play about 120 shows a year regionally, so I'm out every single weekend. Um, 
it's 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 almost that grassroots thing all over again. It's it's impossible to have the big money that we all used to have back in the day when tour support was part of a legitimate record deal. Um, and if you want to go out and tour now, it is it's almost uh, impossible to go out and tour as a band. You have to go out by yourself with your acoustic in your car and hit uh, and hit as many cities as you can. Um, and then when you want to actually spin that into record sales, um, you still have to hire your own PR to do it, so press knows you're coming, and you have some actual ink by the time you get there. Um, and that's expensive. And it, it becomes, to release an album independently and do it right, the way that a business would do it by hiring PR and radio promotion, you're still spending you know, $10,000, $15,000 before you've even hit the road. Um, and that doesn't include the three or four grand you spent making the album. So it's still a, it's still a legitimate concern of where that kind of money comes from and then how do you recoup it in a world where the audience thinks they actually, um, they, they don't need, that the artists don't need to get paid. And, and it's not even the listener's fault. The record industry and the music industry itself, the retail industry, um, is setting that precedent by, you know, look at radio. We're one of, what, four countries in the world that, just, that does not pay artists writers for, for radio airplay, and we're up there with, with, you know, Iraq and North Korea and that list, that's insanity. Hmm. United States, hmm. you know, and, and um, if, if you actually go to uh, irespectmusic.org, you can read a lot more about that. That's Blake Morgan is running that. Um, but it's, it, people think that they can pay that $10 a month and that, well, the artists must be getting paid from that on Spotify, and we're not. Um, I mean, the fact that I, could, I had 3,000 streams on my last statement, and I got 11 cents. 3,000 streams, I got 11 cents. And, I'm, and, and then I'm one of the lucky ones. If you're Aretha Franklin and you were born before 1970, uh, uh, released music before 1972, you're not getting paid at all. Because there was a, a change in the law in 1972. So, I mean, I could record one of Aretha's songs and release it independently now, I get paid more than she would on the same song. It's just—it's just broken. That's broken. That's broken. Eleven cents won't get you. Uh, won't get you to Cambridge uh, when you're driving no. your tour bus okay. there. Guys no. won't get you anything. Now let me. Gosh, I can tell that there are. This is like a, a, a an octopus. This is like a, a tentacles going in every direction here. But um, let me ask you this: I have seen. Dozens, if not hundreds, of these outfits that claim to be, uh, you know, internet promoters, you know, social mm-hmm. promoters. Is there a new era of predator out there? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't even know if it's new. I just think that they're uh, putting a different name on the same old tactic, which is trying to capitalize on. Uh, people who are have a dream and have uh, and are not quite as informed as they need to be. Um, that's nothing new. I mean, that, I mean, people used to, oh, I'm going to produce you and it's going to cost this much, or you know, I'm going to put you on tour, but you got to pay me this much. It's just a whole new form of pay to play, but it's still pay to play. Yeah, I, I started getting these emails as soon as I, you know, launched this little endeavor of mine. Uh, and they didn't even seem to realize that I'm, I'm actually not 
a performing musician anymore. Uh, but it was interesting that they were uh, claiming uh, to do all sorts of magic to to turn me into the rock and roll star superstar that I was meant to be. And yeah. all I had to do was sign on the line. I'm thinking, this is just like this is just like the studio system, except yeah. they're not even doing that for me. And the thing that that I I, I think that you, the, the industry has changed so much to the point that to be a successful independent artist, you have to get the idea of being a rock star out of your head. There is no such thing as a rock star anymore. Rock stars are dead. Uh, what there are now in its place are entrepreneurs who happen to play music and their product is their songs. And if they're smart, they're speaking to music supervisors for TV shows. They're speaking to creative directors at, at uh, creative agencies and they're getting their music placed on commercials and in TV shows and in film. And that is how you sustain yourself with your art because then you start getting ASCAP checks or BMI checks that blow your socks off. Yeah. I was kind of wondering, you you become this phenomenon that I started calling sub-famous, where is you've heard my music and you have no idea who I am. And, and I think that's kind of cool. That means you're actually judging my, my creation and not something stupid I'm going to say in an interview. You know, and that's exactly why I'm in it. I'm in it because I create. I want you to have an interaction with my creation, not me as a personality. I don't give a crap. Yeah, I was wondering how I was going to get around to that subject because if you look at your credits uh, for scoring uh, on television and elsewhere, it's really impressive. How did you start? You. How did you start? Um, well, first of all, did somebody approach you, or did you know that this was an avenue that you wanted to get into? So that goes back to the the saying no to a record label thing. After I did that, um, <laughs> how things happen in in, in threes. Um, part of that whole implosion was I also got laid off from my day job not long after that. Uh, I got a big fat severance package, which, you know, nobody does that anymore, but then it was awesome. Um, I actually took that money and I gambled. And what I did with that money is I said to myself, who, what, what is a label going to do for me that I can't do for myself if I hire the right people? So I hired a PR agency, I hired a radio promotion agency, and I released Anime Sweetheart nationally uh, by myself. Uh, and I had them doing all the radio promotion and, and PR, and I got great PR around the country. I was on the uh, CMJ Top 30 on about 100 different stations, uh, as far as like Alaska and Hawaii, and I was all over the U.S., places I couldn't get to. There's a whole other issue. Um, and from that, the first music supervisor approached me, and her, her pitch was, hey, do you want your music to be on The Sopranos? And I laughed at her, because... <laughs> I was like, I'm just sure, yeah, go ahead, put my music on the Sopranos. And she was dead serious and had the connections to make it happen, and before I knew it, I was on two episodes of the Sopranos. And then two episodes of NCIS and CBS, and then it just kept going from there. A lot of, a lot of daytime TV, and uh, and then I saw my first ASCAP check, and I couldn't believe it. I'm like, wow, this maybe this is how you do it. It, maybe it's not about anybody knowing who I am and touring and selling out arenas. Maybe it's about I can pay my bills and be a full-time musician on something I create um, for nobody but myself hmm. um, because somebody else has found a use for it. Yeah, that's amazing. That is really amazing. And and I I I guess I might have predicted this. There's a um, gosh. 
it was in uh it was in some fox series it might have been might have been 24 or something i heard a song that i had heard on a podcast just months before and i went <laughs> to the artist's website and he had this massive you know you know 72 point font i'm going to be on tv and um yeah. and it was so weird to think okay there's a guy no one but me and you know maybe a couple thousand other people have heard you know right no one knows who this guy is i recognized it i went to his website and sure enough there he is and yeah he's going to get he's going to get a check um and he's going to get to pay the the rent that week and i well, think well not just that week the fascinating thing about that whole model is that if this is something every single time that airs he's going to get paid and if it's something that goes into syndication, he is going to get paid forever. And it becomes a snowball effect. It's not just about the one thing. It's about how many placements can you get that are going to last long enough that those checks continue to roll in. And that goes back to what I was talking about with legacy. I got three kids. What happens when I'm gone? Mm. Well, the, the, the U.S. copyright law says that ASCAP will continue to pay them 70 years after my death. So if these are things that go on, because you know, until the copyright runs out, if these are things that last forever, the Sopranos isn't going anywhere, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Oh, hopefully, hopefully that lasts a good long time. Um, that long after I'm gone, my kids are still getting those checks. So it sounds like a very mature approach. It isn't the starry-eyed. Um, we're going to go out there and we're going to have. Uh, Millions of girls screaming, and we're going to have you know fan club. It's not that anymore, is it? You know, well, that's what your live shows are for. I mean, it, it's still that in the venues. They're smaller venues, you know. But I mean, I'm playing a 150 capacity place, or, you know, a 300 capacity place, and I'm out there and I'm having to basically mix covers with originals to get people's attention. Um, but there's a smart way to do that too, which is basically um, um, stylizing the cover so they sound like yours anyway, which is what. <laughs> The music industry used to be back in the day. Writers and, and performers were not always the same people. Um, and and just taking ownership the way that artists used to take ownership of things. And if you go out and if you're entertaining enough, it's still that. I mean, there's a venue that we play up in uh, up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Rira. Every single time we're there, it is jam jam packed, and it's a sea of people jumping up and down. And it's that whole experience. You know, you, you, you still can get that. And I mean, how much of it, how many of those people do you need? You know, if you have, and it's like, it's like the Ani DeFranco rule of, of, of running a business. I don't need millions of people. I need a couple of thousand loyal fans. Right. And if I have that, I'm good. You know, I'm the, not going to be famous, but that's okay. Well, you know, it's a, it's an interesting take on it. And I think that it probably is what, what, what what's going to happen is we're going to look back 25 years from now and we're going to see that, you know, this all should have been obvious because so many things, in addition to music, I mean, you've got, you know, writers, freelance, uh, copywriters, editors, you've got photo researchers, all kinds of people are treating their career as an entrepreneurial experience. And they have, yes. they have to, There's, there is no choice. You know, I've worked in publishing, and there are very, very few full-time, you know, benefited gigs out there. You've got to, you've got to hustle a buck. You spend, you know, a third of your time marketing your yourself, and you hope 
that you can make an impression that, yeah, you don't have tons of clients, but you sure like to have like a half a dozen steady ones. And right. that it's it's the same thing, you know. You 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 love you love it when the gravy comes, but you'll take the mashed potatoes uh, most of, most of the time. Um, I think yeah. that there's even uh, for musicians, this is the probably the neatest experiment that I've seen, and maybe maybe you can give your take on it. Um, house concerts. What do you think about these? These are happening over the internet, and they're pay as you will. I think it's, it's it's an interesting phenomenon, right? It's it's come back. I mean, there there have always been house parties and bands playing house parties, but now it's like it's it's got it's got a name. It's a house concert, and there's this expectation of what it is. But it's always been going on. Um, it's uh it's it's part of this new expectation because of I believe social media, where people expect that they are entitled to this personal connection with artists. Um, and the house concert is, is the manifestation of that. It's, I am so entitled to know who you are as a person. You're going to play in my house. <laughs> you're going to come in my living room and you're going to do a show. And I think that um, it brings artists back down to earth, right? There's no way for you to stand on that pedestal when you're sitting in someone's living room. You just can't do it. You have to actually start interacting on this personal level, which I think at the end of the day, when we look back on this whole thing, will make artists more thoughtful about their, about what they write about and about their processes and actually expose them to more uh, life experience. Because if you're going to get to know all these people, you're going to get to hear and see a lot of things you might not have otherwise. Because hmm. now you have to open yourself to these other perspectives. Because they're paying you to be there. So now you have to listen. It might be um, it might be a little far from the ivory halls of of Berkeley. It's a it's a long way from all that, and and there's a, there's a there's a time and place for all that too. But I mean, look at someone like Taylor Swift. I mean, like her music or hate it, um, this is someone who has prided her professional reputation on having personal connections with her fans. Who the hell does that on that level? You know, who is so. Uh, so humble that she needs to know who these people are and needs to interact with them, um, not for her ego, but for her for her artistic benefit. Um, that's that says a lot to me about someone's character, especially at that level. She could she could she could lock herself away in her ivory castle, um, just like everybody else on that level, and she goes out of her way not to. I mean, there was something during the holidays where she was personally delivering gifts to fans and, you know, signing every single card, and she doesn't have to do that. She doesn't have to do that. No, she doesn't. You know, not. and that's, that kind of connection is, is, is special. So if artists on my level can go and sit and, you know, and talk to people, and, and get that personal connection, and and that's that's kind of what the the, the people are actually expecting. Then I think it works for everybody. Hmm. Uh, I, I personally, as a performer, to sit in someone's living room and play—that's weird. That's tough for me. <laughs> I am not a quiet guy, and when I sing, I'm really not a quiet guy. So I I, don't, I have a problem with trying to communicate that level of intimacy uh, without a production. But that's something I need to work on. Um, I think it's cool. Yeah, yeah. Now. 
you you said the word the magic word for me because it is something that um if I ever get another tattoo, it's going to be the word humility um, <laughs> because I struggle with it all the time. I never feel like I can have enough humility. And that's something that I think seems to come across in your music really well uh, that you Thank have. You. Yeah. I, 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 I am, I'm in awe that you managed to be so grounded. Um, maybe it's, maybe it's, I don't know if it's in spite of or because of, of the life experiences that have led to your success. For example, you have just scored the film The House Across the Street, which is the 2000 release. Has it, when is it, when is it actually being released? Has it released yet? Yeah, it came out uh, uh, the month before the album came out. Right. Okay. Um, the House Across the Street, it's a, uh, it's a thriller um, by Ith Films. And you mm-hmm. scored that. How did that happen? So that's the second feature film I've worked with that director on. Um, so we already had a relationship, a working relationship, but, um, he came back to me, uh, Arthur, Arthur Loom's the director. He actually is a Massachusetts based guy. Um, and Arthur's incredible, incredible character. He is deaf, uh, and he's, and he directs hearing actors. Um, he does it through a combination of just coming to like the common language, uh, which is not ASL because most of the actors on the set don't know it. Um, and he, he can, he can speak, but I mean, he's, he's been, I think well, he's been deaf his whole life. So, you know, the actors have to learn to really kind of listen and interpret what he's trying to say and how he's trying to direct them. Um, I think he's brilliant. I think his eye is incredible. Um, so yeah, so this was the second experience we did together. The first one was a, a movie called Cond, which came out a few years back, which is sort of a black comedy. Uh, but when he decided to do another one, he... Um, he puts 100% trust in me because he can't hear what I do. So he needs to count on me to interpret his vision uh, without getting in the way of the story, which is a big responsibility. A lot of times when you are just starting out as a composer, you have a director who is uh, helping you through the process. Um, I didn't get to have that experience, so I had to uh, I had to figure it out. <laughs> Well, you can hear, uh, if you, anybody can go to your website, uh, which of course there'll be a link uh, in the show notes to, to, to see the trailers. Isn't that, you've got a link to the trailer there? Yes, it's the link to the trailer is there. Uh, it's available on Amazon right now. It was, uh, it was a limited release in the theaters for a while. It's, uh, it's now on Amazon, it's, it's on iTunes, and I believe it's coming to Netflix very right soon. Awesome. Now, so that's uh, that's... Uh, a pretty big deal. The The new album is a pretty big deal. And um, I guess what I can say is that I listened to Argue With Gravity with no expectations. And I'm awfully glad of that because they would have been, they would have been completely uh, blown out of the water if I'd had any. Um, the album itself is, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, you can't, it's hard to get your whole arms around it. You know, those big maple trees, uh, in some forests, yeah. it's a huge maple tree that you're not going to get your arms around because you you cover a lot of ground in Argue with Gravity. What was the sort of headspace that you were in when when you were writing that? Um, the headspace I was in was Sticky Fingers and uh, um, Bill Withers and uh, Marvin Gaye and. Um, just, just that that period where, uh, and, and interpretations of that period, like Michelle and Yachella when she does a cover and how she 
kind of takes ownership of it, and she does. She's done a bunch of the with us, the with us covers, and um, like I said, for me, it was just kind of getting getting back to the root of what I loved, and not in a retro way because I think that would have been it, like going for the cheap joke, right? Mm. Um, that's what's in right now. It's easy to you know pull the retro card and be like, this guy's right on top of what's going on. He's like, the guy's finger on the pulse. I have no regard for that. I don't care. Um, for me, it was about the music that I loved and just writing the music that I loved, even if nobody gave crap. Um, and that took a long time for me to come to that headspace um, because this is part of how I make my living. So it, it matters that I can get music placed or, or sell albums, but um, this, this was purely an artistic endeavor and it was a lesson in separating art from commerce. And, uh, if, again, if it never gets placed and nobody ever cares, then yeah, I still made the album I needed to make. So, musically, it was just coming from uh, social commentary, um, from from my own experiences with with sort of the grooves of that of that time that I love so much, uh, and stripping away a lot of the um, a lot of the trappings technically or te- technologically that I had always kind of relied on. This album was played by all humans, and the uh, majority of which were in the same room at the same time. A lot of these are done in one to three takes max, and it's an actual performance by an actual band of actual killer musicians. And uh, uh, even that was new, because on most of my previous albums, I played everything myself. Hmm. Wow, this does sound like a bit of a, a bit of a change. And, and um, now, were any of these... Um, were any of these musicians in in your band that you that you All played these musicians with? Are my, yeah, this this is my live band. So I'll tell you, I um, you've got some heavy hitters in that band too. That with you, they've done a few things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you got some real heavy hitters in there. Um, Tony Savarino. Yes, I uh, I first encountered him after hearing. Let's see if you remember this this group. Um, it was uh, our, uh, what was gosh the Ruds was the name of the, oh, yeah. the song, and they they wrote a song called Tony Savarino, which was. <laughs> do you remember that song? Did you hear that? Yeah. yeah, it was kind of a kind of a playful, poking fun at the at this uh, really talented musician. Um, maybe I'll have to play that one of these days soon. But um, what? How long have you been playing with these guys? Tony, I've been playing with for almost five years now. He's actually been in the band the longest. So the funny thing is, on the new album, he only gets on the album. He's on uh, two tracks uh, briefly. Uh, this album, I wanted to, um, I wanted to get back to playing a lot more guitar, and uh, and kind of took that on myself. Um, the the drummer, Michael Vec. Um, Mike has got a really impressive resume, and there's a real good reason for that because he's a pretty impressive drummer. Uh, and a great guy, um, and uh, and Sean McLaughlin, who has a studio in Rockland, Massachusetts. He uh, he's my bass player, and uh, Sean again, he's another guy who's worked with a lot of really impressive people, and um, and, and it's one of those things we start to experience. It's not because of their resume that they're awesome; it's they're awesome, therefore they have a resume. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and they're just the nicest guys in the world, and they have all the experience in the world, and they have as much, if not ten times more than I do, and all the ego just drops away. 
And at that point, it's, it's, it's almost, we, um, we call it like bowling night. You know, it's just a, a couple of guys getting together, doing what they love. And, uh, and sometimes they pay us for it. Um, and uh, it's also uh, Jim Gambino, uh, who's, who's the newest guy to the band. He's the keyboard player. He, Jim is in uh, the Swing the Stakes. Um, he, he, it turns out he lives like five miles from my house. And uh, now we work together a lot. And he's just so ridiculously talented. He was able to bring, you know, real Hammond organ, real Rhodes. I mean, there's very little sample anything on this. Most, like I said, most everything is played together in the same room and all uh, authentic everything. Uh, uh, actual vintage uh, vintage drums and uh, Sean is playing a Hofner on most of this stuff. And it's just so cool. I mean, you realize that that period had that character uh, partly because of the players, but also partly because of what the players had access to. And I, and I do believe strongly it's the wizard, not the wand. Uh, but hey, it's good to have a really cool one too. <laughs> well, that's true, and and there's something to be said for you know I I think um, the 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 sort of the overlap between the the human the human physical body and the vibration of a of a live instrument. I've always believed that there's a there's a connection that occurs uh, you know when it's real drums you know real guitar yeah. And, and um, it's the connection that occurs when those live things are interacting. And that's just not how music is recorded these days. There's, there's the, uh, the need for isolation and blah, 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 blah. And, and, and we had some of that, but we also let a lot of things go because that's not how things were recorded back then. And there, there was a character to that interaction where you could look the guy in the eye while you're playing a part, and therefore you're going to connect and hit points in the music that you wouldn't have otherwise. Um, and also the honesty of not using any modeling on guitar. Most everything you hear these days, even the stuff that "quote unquote" sounds vintage, is is modeled. And this was, you know, this was an American Strat through an old Fender Reverb. That's it. That was it. And and I just think that there's an honesty to that that I had never had in my music before. Uh, partly because I'm a producer and I like to make cool noises. Um, for me, on this album, the cool noise was just letting things be what they are. <laughs> So where wh- when do we get to hear this album live? Uh your your what what kind of dates do you have coming up? Boy, you know if my computer was boot, <laughs> I've been installing something this entire conversation and it hasn't come back up. Well, um, but we can go, put it. Go, go to monkwayne.com, my whole uh, my whole schedule is there every single weekend. Yeah, we'll we'll put a we'll we'll put a link to that. We'll put a link to your album is available through Amazon. It's on Amazon, Where, it's on where's iTunes. The, where's the best place for people to get your album? Anywhere that's good for them. Okay, there you <laughs> iTunes, go. Amazon, CD Baby, uh, there's, there's a lot of places that you can get it. Well, we'll uh, it's d- only available available in digital release right now. We're going to do a limited CD run uh, probably in the next month or so. Um, but I'm finding that's just not what people want anymore, which is too bad. But I actually want to do a vinyl run, but that's really expensive. There's only two places left in the world that actually do that the way it's supposed to be done. Hmm. I've seen that there are a few people who are releasing vinyl. Is, is, are they just it's not the quality that you'd go for or, or what? No, the quality is, is fabulous. I mean, it's it's the audio files that are actually drifting toward vinyl again. And vinyl's becoming, uh, it's coming back, which is one of the coolest things of the past 10 years, I think, that vinyl's actually making a comeback because people want that experience where, you know, yeah, so you can't skip from song to song. So what? You get this big, cool thing with all this great artwork that you can see without a magnifying glass. 
and uh, and it sounds it's got a different character. Even when you master uh, music for release, you have to do a separate master that is going to vinyl because of the because of the way that vinyl works. You don't want the the needle jumping out of the groove because it's too much low end and all that kind of stuff. Oh, definitely, um, but it, definitely. Yeah, I, you know, and I mean now people are used to listening to really crappy quality music. They listen to MP3. They listen to you know lossy formats. They don't. Again, this is the you know uphill both ways in the snow thing. But you know the quality of what we listened to back then was about the quality of what we listened to. It wasn't about the convenience of what we listened to. The worst quality we had was cassettes uh, or even eight tracks. are kind of horrible. But um, even compared to the MP3 format, you were still listening to a full resolution recording. Oh sure. You know, people don't know that what they're listening to right now is. Not a full resolution recording, and if you're listening to it streamed, you're hearing it dumbed down even further. As people who listen to songs played through this podcast will will experience, <laughs> sadly. Well, that depends on the, the rate that you're streaming it. I stream but, uh, I stream at 128 because there you go. I I mean I won't go lower, but to stream much higher, I get smacked by my ISP, by my host. If I oh, if I go. start if I start pushing that you know if I were doing it 320 kpbs I would get smacked so I'm not yeah. gonna I'm not gonna do I'm not gonna risk having be shut because these days um, providers are shutting you down without any warning frequently oh it's incredible so all of a sudden you start getting emails saying dude your site is dead and you right. sure, sure enough your site's dead and then maybe if you're lucky you get an email saying oh um even though you have uh, what's known as an unlimited bandwidth uh, account you read the fine print um and right. th- that's a really scary position when you go to your website and you realize that your show is gone and i don't want yeah. i don't want that to happen so i'm i'm actually probably yep. going to be moving the the hosting of files uh, probably to Libsyn, um, just because that's what they're there for. And if I wanted to stream at 320, they're happy to do that as long as I pay. But, that, but it's a different it's a different paradigm. What you're talking about and what you do is akin to what radio used to be, right? So yeah. people would listen to a show and get turned on to something listening to that show, and then go and seek out that artist, whether they were buying the album or buying the CD or whatever. And then they got the full resolution quality of what they what they purchased. And even radio back in the day, radio today, it's still compressing the crap out of everything. It ne- things never sounded as good as they can sound on radio, going all the way back. So, but now it's not about hearing something on a show, whether it's a podcast or, or a terrestrial radio show or satellite, and then going and getting the album. It's about hearing it and going, hey, that's awesome. And then going and streaming it someplace else on another lossy format. They never have the opportunity to hear the full resolution uh, recording that the artist spent thousands of dollars achieving. Now, when people download Argue with Gravity, is that an AIFF file or is that what, what kind of a file is that? It depends on where they get it, right? So if they get it from Amazon, I believe they can download it as a WAV or an AIFF. If they get it from iTunes, they get the iTunes format which is a lossy format. Hmm. Um, if they get it from, I think you can do like high def iTunes downloads and it costs like a dollar 99 instead of 99 cents or whatever. So you can get something that sounds, that's not a higher resolution. Um, you go to bandcamp.com, you can download the actual wave, which sounds exactly like it's supposed to sound like. Um, 
it's up to the listener, right? I mean, there's nothing you can really do about that. They, as long as they, as long as they want to download it, that's kind of all I care about. Well, there you go. There you go. No, I think um, I think if I were to stack all of my vinyl in the back of my Subaru, the bumper would drag its ass on the ground. <laughs> and I won't get rid of them. I, and in fact, uh, some of them, you know, they probably were had too many scratches and pops back in 1983, but I'm still not getting rid of them. Um, right. You know, and then, of course, the great thing about vinyl is that occasionally you get these really cool... Uh, you know, specialty things like the the Beatles white vinyl white album, or um, trying to think of what other really neat famous colored albums came out. There were a few though. Sure. And you didn't know, and you didn't know. It was kind of like Willy Wonka and the uh, the the Golden Ticket. You didn't know sometimes when you were buying the album if you were getting that special colored vinyl. Um, right, right, right. And that the was one of. The- Oh yeah, I mean, I remember you know those those days and saying you know, gosh, I wonder who's going. They've only released you know a thousand or ten thousand of these. I wonder who's going to get them. Um, and that's that kind of excitement. Uh, that was part of the whole experience. Uh, that mm-hmm. made yeah, that made the vinyl, that made the album. Like you said, you didn't need a magnifying glass to read it. Right, right. I actually bought the. Uh... Bought Wings Over America, rebought, repurchased Wings Over America on vinyl recently. No. And I forgot because I got this a thousand years ago when I got it the first time. And there was this awesome big giant poster in there because it was a double album. So right. I, I got, I had that poster up on my wall in my studio, um, just like when I was a kid. And I was like, wow, I mean, this would need to be part of the whole experience where you sat and you listened and you read and it was it was all part of an experience, but there were there were a couple of things that facilitated that. Albums weren't four thousand hours long; they were forty minutes long. I would do argue with Gravity. I set out on purpose to make a thirty-seven minute album because that's the length they used to be. You know, that used to be this concept of leave them wanting more, not you know make them turn it off in the last four songs of your album because it's had enough of it. <laughs> Um, and they're also now, because music is so, so, so portable, music is a point A to point B thing exclusively. I don't know. It's not part of the casual listener habit anymore to sit and immerse. Um, back then, immersion was all you had. You couldn't, you know, you, your your vinyl was not portable. You know, you sat in your room and you, you hung out with your friends and you did whatever and you, you listened to dark side of the moon or you listen to, you know, you know, set with four or whatever you did. That's true. That's true. It was an event, wasn't it? When you, especially when you got, you know, you bought it and you trucked it home from the record store and, you know, you'd call up your friend and then, yeah, you would, uh, you'd hang out and you would listen to it front to back. And, uh, and you don't. And then you talk about, I mean, my oldest friend in the world, I met him in sixth grade. Um, and, uh, it was because he was, (laughs) He was tapping on his desk in front of me in math class, singing my Sharona, and he was, he was annoying the crap out of me. I smacked him in the back of the head, told him to shut up, and it turned out he was a new kid in in, uh, in the neighborhood. And he was on my bus on the way home, and we just started talking about music and albums and what we listened to, and you know, and then he came over and we listened to albums together, and it's you know, and he, that was in sixth grade, and you know, this was a long time ago, and we are still you know best friends today. And, you know, music and, and the shared experience of that is what brought us together. Let the audience take note. The Knack forged a friendship to last a lifetime. 
crazy? Oh boy. So yes. I think um I think we've we've pretty much come full circle, Monk. I think that um it was the authenticity that kind of got things rolling here. And we're back to that. And we're back to that, you know, the and I, maybe authenticity is, is overused now, but it basically captures what what we're talking about, I think. Uh, the idea mm-hmm. that it is a real experience. It is something that that stays with you, uh, either because of its uh, relevance to your life at that time or because of uh, just the musical, you know, the beauty of the, the words and the, the, the combination of the words and the sounds uh, that last forever. And I'm just wondering what uh, what's next up for you. Oh, boy. Um, I'm just kind of supporting the new album at the moment. I'm actually really itchy to get, to, to, uh, get writing again. I feel like I've um, finally found this groove I'm very happy with. Uh, this, this, this methodology that I feel very at home with in terms of the way I'm writing and the way I'm recording and the way I'm kind of expressing myself. Uh, and I want to I just go further. I feel like Argue with Gravity is... is is starting from scratch and starting over in the coolest way, and I, I just want to involve uh, that. Well, uh, as well as uh, continuing to score films, I um, I'll be starting a new film uh, soon. I just got it contracted for. Um, I know very little about it yet, so I I can't tell you anything yet. Um, and uh, and just continue on that 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 sub famous path. I just want to get back to the point where I can do this. Uh, as a full-time musician, um, I have three kids and a mortgage, and it, it became a little much. Uh, b- before, when it was just me and one kid, it was a lot easier. Uh, mm. But now it's uh, it, it, it's just not the life I want to provide for my family. I want them to have everything they need, and that, that requires me to work a little harder. Um, but at some point, you know, uh, um, I'll be back to doing this nothing but full-time and only have one job again. So that's the goal. Well, I am honored to be here as you're starting over, and uh, and I have to tell you that I was, um, you know, when I thought about the first get, who do I want to have on uh, for a first guess on the this inaugural episode of Indecent Exposure? It didn't take me ten seconds to to come up with who the perfect <laughs> guest was. Monk Dwayne, uh, who has been there and back, and and he has just put out a fantastic album. Argue with Gravity just released uh, early the, earlier this year. Um, it is, you know, you, know, you say that it's uh, it's so different than other things that you've you've um, you've done. I hear actually little bits of other albums, little bits of your you know your personality uh, coming through uh, into this album. So I, I think it's interesting. People should listen to all the albums, um, buy them all. In fact, they're all available. So. Um, what I'll say is we get links to your site. Uh, we will have links to your most uh, your upcoming shows. When you get a chance to come to the Berkshires, please do. Um, oh, absolutely. Um, there's, like I said uh, before we started, before we hit the, the record button, there's not a lot of venues out this way compared to other places, compared to Boston. But there's house parties. There's, there's house, house parties. parties. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to we'll have to pass the hat around. And have a Monk Dwayne Band house party. I think I'm going to work on that. I'm going to work on that. Well, you have been a gracious guest and a very generous conversationalist. And I thank you, Monk Dwayne, for for coming on Indecent Exposure. 
Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, have a great 2015, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Great. Yeah, bye-bye. Thank you. Take care. All right. Well, that probably answers the question about why I was so excited to have Monk Duane on as the first guest here on Indecent Exposure at the Greylock Glass. And if anybody is thinking that that was some sort of like, you know, we're not worthy bowing with the hands going down to the floor there. It was, all right? I'm not ashamed. I think uh, Monk Duane is a legend. And anybody who can stay that humble and that grounded and enjoy the sort of constant steady growth that he has uh, deserves all the good things that he gets in 2015 and beyond. And I guess that's a great segue into this next song uh, that we're going to play from Argue With Gravity, his 2015 release, uh, Where Is My Ever After? And I don't think I've played that either on the top left corner or Will Call. So this will be a at least a debut here on Indecent Exposure. Give it a listen. Let me know what you think. Where Is My Ever After? Monk Duane.
I have no doubt that Monk will enjoy his ever after, and I hope you do too. Me? Well, some days I'll settle for a can't complain ever after, but I'm more than happy that you are here with me for this inaugural kickoff episode number one of Indecent Exposure here at the Greylock Glass. If I didn't tell you at the beginning of the show, this episode was recorded on Monday, June 8th and June 9th and released on June 9th, 2015. I am your host, Jason Velasquez, known in an alternative universe as The Mongrel. I don't know who's going to be our guest on the next episode. Hopefully we'll have some artists that we have not featured on this show or any of the other podcasts at the Greylock Glass. But you can check it out uh, at greylockglass.com. Look for the link in the menu, Indecent Exposure. That's a long name to fit in a link, so it's going to maybe just say Indie or Exposure. I have no idea what it'll say, but you'll figure it out. Um, I have some ideas and I've got some interviews lined up just don't know which one's going to come through first so keep keep uh keep up to date if you are a musician and you want to be featured especially if you're from the northeast of the u.s uh where our sort of focus is get in touch with me hit the contact us button leave a comment send me an email any of these things uh, also if you have friends who are musicians let them know uh, share this show with your friends you've probably noticed that you can just use the little, you know, social buttons uh, on each uh, post, each podcast. Uh, and you could share that via Twitter, Facebook, uh, wherever you like to share best. Also, you can join our our weekly update, email update, Prism. And uh, in fact, it's so non-spammy, we don't always even get it to you every week. So... <laughs> If you want to stay up to date, uh, that's one way to do it, too. Uh, As always, it's a pleasure to have you here, and we'll talk to you next week. Take care.